Our Father, we are so prone to becoming out of tune with reality. And your word uh, puts us back into tune. It is truth. It is the one thing uh, that's around us that, that stands forever, that lasts forever. And so we pray that you would tune our hearts and our minds according to the world as it is, according to your word. We ask for your spirit to do that work in us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, life presents us with a choice. We can live, two, one of two things, we can live in our own power, or we can live in God's grace. Life in your own power looks like this. You muscle your way through it. You snag accomplishment after accomplishment, accolade after accolade. You crush the competition. And here's the thing, like if, if you're really good at living life this way, it can be intoxicating. If, if you possess power, if you're smart, if you're witty, if you have musical ability or athleticism, it can be a rush of adrenaline living that kind of life. Your, your own skill and grit can make you soar. It can win championships. It can conquer nations and build empires and build wealth. You can build a following with those things. But the Bible, uniquely, I don't, I don't see this anywhere else, the Bible invites us to live a different way, to live by grace. By grace, you have been saved, the scriptures say. And here's the, the, the thing is, grace seems weak to the powerful, but it's really the only way to live. I mean, you can muscle your way and wit your way and grit your way to win championships, to conquer standardized tests and get admitted to the best colleges. You can build companies, you can build organizations, you can build friendships with your wit and personality and muscle and smarts. But you can't raise the dead with those things. You can't accumulate an eternal wealth that is unfading and unperishable. You can't establish a kingdom that will last forever. Only the grace of God can do those things. Only the grace of God can raise the dead. And this is not news, this choice that we have in life. I mean, this, this is what we talk about every week, isn't it? Our sin, God's grace. But it's important to see it again because, as Pastor Eugene Peterson says, he says, in my 50 years of being a pastor, my most difficult assignment continues to be, now he's, he's passed away now, but when he said this, my most difficult assignment continues to be the task of developing among my flock a sense of the soul-transforming implications of grace, a comprehensive reorientation from living anxiously by my wits and muscles to living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. And one of the reasons this is so difficult for us to kind of get this grace into our heads and hearts and bones and get it to seep into every pore of, of us, one of the reasons it's difficult for that to happen is because our own culture, American culture, says Peterson, 
is a context of the persistent denial of grace. Everything in the world around us is trying to suppress grace. And so it's difficult. And so we come week after week to remind ourselves of real life that is found in living in the active presence of a gracious God. Because the world around us is in a state of persistent denial of grace, we come here to remind ourselves of the world as it really is. So we, can, so we carry on, right, preaching the grace of God to be found in Christ. And here we are in John's gospel looking at the passion of, of Christ, his, his sufferings. And this, is a good, this is a good lead up because we're about to enter the season of Lent in a, in a couple of weeks. And uh, that will carry us, the passion will carry us all the way up to Easter. So this morning, last week, you, you may recall, we looked at the arrest of Jesus. And this week, we're immediately following the, the arrest, we see these two trials that take place. A trial of Christ, and then Peter's trial that takes place. And what we're going to see as we look at these two trials is the insufficiency of the human heart the insufficiency of the human heart, and then we're going to see the unsurpassing sufficiency of Christ. So those are the two points, the insufficiency of the human heart and the unsurpassing sufficiency of Christ. So let's jump right in. Verse 13, they they arrested Jesus, and immediately this force leads him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And if you move down to verse 19, Annas begins to question Christ. Look at verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, point of clarification, Caiaphas is called the high priest. How many high priests can there be, right? There's one, right? It's like the high, the best, the high priest. But Caiaphas is called the high priest. And here Annas is described as the high priest. What's going on? Well, Annas was high priest, and there were subsequent high priests that followed him. But Rome removed Annas from being high priest. And so likely what's going on is Annas is still the high priest in the eyes of the Jews. Can, can the Romans, is it their prerogative to appoint and remove priests? No. So Annas is still functioning as a high priest, as well as Caiaphas. And that that, that explains it. But you remember Caiaphas' concern that we saw a few chapters back. We looked at it in the fall. He, he he, He said that it's best for one man to die for the people. He said that. And John reminds us in verse 14 of that point. Because the belief was that this follower, all the followers that Jesus is gathering through his teaching and through his work and ministry is going to spark a Roman clampdown, likely. And they did not want that. They wanted things to be stabilized. They're the ones in power. Instability might compromise their own power. And so here, Annas provides a a, a sort of informal, initial investigation of Jesus. And he questions him about his disciples and his teaching. And again, that's the concern. That, that's their real concern. They could care less about Jesus, about his claims. What they care about is that Jesus is growing quite a following. And with that following means Rome's going get, to get their attention. If you know anything about Roman history, Pax Romana, right? Roman peace. 
Their empire is built on the stability that they were able to produce in the world. And if these Jews start creating this Messiah thing going and try to rebel, that's going to create problems. Rome's going to sniff that out and stop it and potentially compromise the power of the Jewish ruling uh, class, the high priests and, and other religious leaders. And so Jesus, so, he, so, so he's asking Jesus about this in verse 20. Jesus replies, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught uh, in synagogues and, and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, for a long time, when you, when you conduct an investigation, I was a headmaster. I had these, we had these little issues that would arrive, these, these little fights or skirmishes or issues. And when you, when you investigate a situation, it's best to get all the witnesses in first, right? And then you get the accused story. So you have kind of like a context for understanding the accused statement. They're not doing that here. They're, 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 they're questioning the accused right off the bat. No witnesses. And Jesus, in a sense, is calling out the process. He's saying, you, I've got witnesses. Go talk to them. I've never, and he's telling them, I've got nothing to hide. I have never, my teaching has come in public, in view for everyone to hear. And then verse 22, when he said this, one of, his, one of the officers uh, standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus replied, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here's, here's Jesus before the high priest. Uh, the guards, the temple guards, the police, the temple police, and he's being grilled in the halls of power. Meanwhile, John flanks the trial of Jesus here with Peter, with Peter's trial. So let's, let's turn to that now. Look at verse 15. John is sort of inviting us to kind of make a comparison here. Say, look, look at these two. Just look at them side by side. See how he organizes it? Peter, Jesus, Peter. He's saying, look, look at a bad, look at, look at how a person buckles and look at how Christ withstands. Okay, so let's look at it. Verse 15, um, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, likely John, since that disciple was known to the high priest. So somehow John has a connection to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl. This is John speaking to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also aren't, are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. Now, again, contrast. Jesus is standing in the halls of power at the center of Jewish power before the most powerful man within Israel and his, his, his guards. And Jesus is withstanding this trial. And here Peter is asked on the margins at the entrance to the, to the, to the courtyard by a little a servant girl. The word is like a young girl, like a probably 12, 13, 14, a slave. Aren't you one of his disciples? And he buckles. Peter buckles. Under the question, 
And that's denial number one. Now notice, remember what Jesus said? Ask my witnesses. They've heard my teaching. Peter's one of the, one of the few that's heard like all of Jesus' teaching. Peter is the witness. He, he's the one they should be asking. And this little girl says, uh, aren't you one of his disciples? And he wilts. He buckles. This is the witness of Jesus failing. But it keeps going. Let's move down to verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a, a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Okay, let's, let's move down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Three denials that Peter makes, just as, as promised. And every gospel writer, the gospel writers don't include all the things that happen on these final moments of Jesus' life, but they all include Peter's denials. What are we to make of it? What, is it, what does it mean for us? What does this, this, does this denial mean for us? Jesus is being slapped. He's being mocked. He's being questioned by the powers. And what's Peter doing? Warming his hands by a fire. Buckling under the casual questions, questioning of just nobody, commoners, the crowd. What does it mean? Well, it highlights the, insuff- the miserable insufficiency of the human heart. That's what this highlights. And like we said, the unsurpassing sufficiency of Christ. Peter is acting in full-blown self-preservation, seeking to eliminate risk and discomfort. Warming his hands by the fire. Bruner puts, puts it this way. He explains it like this. Peter believes his moment to show his courage was vastly underrated by his Lord. Peter, Lord, I'm, I'm with you. Don't, don't count me out. Don't count me as a... De-. So he's bracing himself for the big moment where maybe he's standing before the high priest. And in the midst of that, Peter, so this is what Bruner says, Peter is bracing himself for bold public confession of Jesus in the presence of much more formidable, fearsome, and influential Annas. You can imagine his eyes and his head are turned, his attention is turned to, to what's happening, like in the room where it happens, right, where the powers are, and Jesus is. And the little girl asks him, he says, no. And then he's asked again, no. All the action's on the inside, and Peter's attention is there, and he gets sideswiped by these questions. And I think there's something to be gleaned for us in this. Like Peter, it's easy for us to imagine these big moments where we stand strong for the Lord, where we, dec- we confess the Christ to the world, maybe against a hostile crowd. Or these big moments where we, where we sacrifice ourselves, where we lay our lives down in some way before power, hostile powers, like, like a Bonhoeffer moment, right? Where we maybe even die for our Lord. And we, 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 we imagine that, we envision that, we, we hope that we have the strength for that by God's grace. But then the question really is this, do you confess Jesus right now? 
Have you confessed them this morning? Did you die to yourself before church this morning? As you were trying to get the family ready to get here? Like, that's kind of the real question. Who is Christ in the little moments? Because if Peter's getting buckled down here with the servant girl and the slaves and the commoners, how's he going to hold up before Annas? And here's the thing. Everyone is acting selfishly in this moment. The high priests, they, 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 Caiaphas way back said, it's better that one man die for the people. It's, we got to... We got to kill this man, but here's the good news. We're going to protect the people, and we are the protectors of the people. We are the leaders of the people. It presents, he presents it as sort of a benevolent act of utilitarian ethics. You know, the greatest good for the greatest number. That's how he presents it. But really what it is, is it's, a, it's an attempt to preserve his own power. It's an attempt to preserve the, the powers. The movie Braveheart, we, I watched it recently, again, first time in a long time. But the, the Scots are trying to resist the uh, English oppression, and um, everybody's for it. The people are for it. But remember the rulers, the elders of the Scottish clans, the, the powers of the clans? They don't want rebellion because England's kind of throwing them bones. England's saying, hey, you know, we'll give you a little plot of land if you keep everybody happy, and they're happy with that. The religious priests, they're like, we like Rome. It's kind of nice being at the top of a small pond, and Rome's providing that. So they're acting selfishly. Peter obviously is acting selfishly. He's, he's, he's denying Christ, and he's warming his hands. And John's thesis is this. What John is telling us is this. Me-centered people can't understand, can't follow, can't confess God, even when he's standing right before them. We're blind to him. The high priests, they don't understand that this is the high priest standing before them. They don't understand that this is the Lamb of God. They're, they're dealing. They deal in lambs, in sacrifices, in blood. And they're about to actually sacrifice the Lamb of God. But they don't see it. They're missing, missing the, 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 the irony of it. The, the, the human heart is insufficient to arrive at God. John said it right there at the beginning of his gospel. He said, in the beginning, the light came, and we did not receive him. We did not receive him. We rejected the light. And that's actually happening right here, and it's absurd, and it's confusing. And even in our own day, like a lot of us sort of scratch our heads at all the things that are going on. And even in our own culture, there's racism, there's vitriol, there's confusion, there's these silly obsessions, there's, um, there's, there's, re- there's outright rebellion, there's grave threats within, and there's grave threats outside of us. How do we explain it all? Well, we're hawks when it comes to seeing the sin that's out there, and we're blind as bats usually when it comes to seeing our own sin, aren't we? The problems that reside in our own hearts. But here's the thing, whether it's outside of us or within us, the human heart is broken and it is woefully insufficient to guide a life. And here, this is so demonstrated so clearly, holy, righteous God, truth is standing in the midst of humanity. And what does humanity do? They deny it, in the case of Peter, one of his followers, or they want to kill it. 
They want to slay truth. This is what the human heart does. This is our response. We put God on trial and we executed him. The heart of man is broken. It's an outright rebellion. We're biting the hand that feeds us. And it's not just broken and rebellious. It's also weak and flaky. And we see that here. Peter's progression is quite remarkable. Last week, he was ready to, ki- he was ready to take on an army. Last week, he pulled his sword and he aimed at the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. I mean, the adrenaline was flowing. He was ready. Peter's zeal. Moments later, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Oh, no, no, not me. Not me. Not me. Three times he denies him. He peters out. That's where we get the term. He peters out. He's wielding a sword for Christ, and now he doesn't even know the guy. He peters out. He buckles. We peter out. Our hearts are weak and broken and rebellious. When Peter confessed the Christ, when Peter confesses Christ, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. Your own heart did not arrive at that truth. But the Spirit of God opened your heart to that truth. That's what Jesus tells him. And that's the point. The human heart does not have the capacity to arrive at Christ as Lord. It must be a work of the Spirit. And remember, our culture puts so much emphasis on the power of the heart to guide and navigate our lives, doesn't it? So much stock in it. It's not biblical. The Bible says the heart is the most deceitful thing. It's also not reasonable. It's not reasonable. I've used this example before, but I think it's helpful. Imagine a ship that's just like making its way through the, through the ocean, navigating the seas, but it's doing so by looking at the lantern that's on the bow of the boat. Would that work? No. They're following a light that's within the boat. And so the boat just, just, they're just going in circles. They're tossed by the winds and waves. There's no, there's no direction. If a ship's navigating its way, it has to find a reference point outside the ship. And so it is with the human heart to, to navigate our lives by looking within. It just doesn't make sense. We need a fixed point outside of our hearts. Christ, God, our creator. So let's now consider. So that's the insufficiency of the human heart. We see it here, the high priest, Peter. Let's now look at the unsurpassing worth of Christ. Is he worthy? He is. He's worthy. While others are acting selfishly, Christ is acting selflessly. And we see it here in this contrast. Peter says three times, not me. Not me. Not me. The Greek is ukemi. 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 That's how John records it. Now, last week, Jesus said three times. Remember what he said? I am. I am. Ego eimi. Ego eimi. Ego eimi. And, John, and it's, it's almost like John is giving us this, this contrast. This is, this is like a Christian mantra for a Christian living. Not me. Not me but Christ. Not me, not me, not me, but Christ. Not Peter. Not Peter. It's not about Peter, but Christ. It's not about the the slick, savvy pastor, but Christ. It's not about the goofy, rambling pastor, but Christ. 
not me, but Christ. The church, the church will be built upon no other foundation but Christ and Christ crucified. And also look at the response of Jesus in verse 19. He's being questioned about his disciples and teaching uh, there in 19. And then in verse 20, he responds to his disciples and his teaching with a very um, kind of self-centered answer. Look at what he says. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And I think subtly what Jesus is telling us is, if you want to know about my disciples, if you want to know about my teaching, I'm where you look. I am my teaching. My teaching is walking embodied right before you. I am. And if you want to know about my disciples, you look to me as well. You're not even going to glean much from my disciples um, at this point, at least, certainly. Look to me. Look to me. Look to my work. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the foundation for my disciples. I'm the grounds of my teaching. I am the cornerstone of all that I will build. I, I the one, the, the stone that the builders rejected, am the one upon whom this whole project of salvation will be built. Christ is merciful, and by grace you have been been saved. And here's the thing. In weeks, in a few weeks, Peter, who's denying Jesus here, will be boldly proclaiming Christ to the world, to Jews from all over the world at Pentecost. And it happens in the very next book of the Bible, Acts, the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles is what we call it, but it's actually more fittingly described as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because if it's just the Acts of the Apostles, we get a denying Peter. That's kind of what we're left with. But when the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, infuses its life and power into the apostles, all of a sudden Peter emerges completely different. It's not human zeal that builds the church. It's Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, the apostles, any pastor, it's not like we just plug in this kind of church for, church growth formula. That's not what builds the church. Many churches have done that. Many have risen and many have fallen that have built around a, a, the zeal of a, of a charismatic leader or the zeal of a, of a personality or the zeal of a, of a social cause or whatever it is. And it fizzles. It runs out. It wears thin. Christ died for our sins. And, those, and we may find salvation in repentance and belief in him. That message... That's what builds the church. So let's go back to the very question that we opened with as we close. Life presents a choice. You can live by your power or you can live by the power and grace of God. What are you build, how are you building your life? If you're, you can follow your own heart and exert your own muscle and grit, or you can re, or rely on your own zeal, right? Or... You can rest in the persistent, steady zeal of the Lord that we see unfolding in the story. 
And Peter, what John is doing is he's, he's displaying side by side the zeal of Peter and the zeal of the Lord. And we see Peter just fizzle. He fizzles. But Jesus persists. And that's important because as we're going to sing in just a moment, our song of the month, you can look at it, uh, Upon a Life. Here, here's the heart of the message, page 10. Upon a life. It's upon a life that I have not lived and upon a death I did not die. It's another's life, another's death that I stake my whole eternity. I stake everything on that. And that's the truth of the gospel. That's where we find life. By resting not in our life, not even in our death, but in the death and life of another, Jesus the Christ. And that grace of God to us changes us. It changes us. If, if we're living by muscle, uh, it makes us prideful. If we're doing really well, it makes us very prideful and hard to be around. If we're failing at it, it makes us very anxious and worrisome and fearful. But if we're living on grace, it creates a generosity of spirit, a kindness and a patience, a long-suffering. You treat others the way you believe God has treated you. You treat others the way you believe God has treated you. God has been gracious to us, and it makes us gracious and loving towards others. Chrysostom, in the fourth century, said this about the denial of Jesus, or not denial of Jesus, Peter's denial of Jesus. This is what he says. God's providence permitted Peter first to fall so that he might be less severe to sinners from the remembrance of his own fall. Peter, the later teacher and, uh, and Lord, little L Lord, sinned and obtained pardon so that judges might thereafter have that rule to go by in dispensing pardon. For this reason, the pastorate wasn't given to angels because being without sin themselves, they would punish sinners without pity. Suffering man, failing man, is placed over man in order that remembering his own weakness, he may be merciful to others. You see, that's what Chrysostom's saying. We treat others the way we believe God has treated us. And this is why. This is why we confess our sins. This is why we speak of our sin. This is why we sing of our sin every week. Because it softens our hearts toward others and it brings afresh to us God's love for us in Christ. The solid rock on which we stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your love and power to us, your persistence that these events unfolding are leading to your death, your pouring out of yourself so that we might receive and receive the life that you bring. Help us to live by grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.